Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. All right. All right. So, welcome to Going Off Track. I'm Jonah, joined here by Ben. Hey, how's it going, Jonah? Good, Ben. uh, Ben sat in on a couple of these intros before. Uh, One. One one. before, yeah. Yeah. Um, Brad is at South by Southwest. Steven is taking care of his kids somewhere. And Ben is just here holding down the Florida rubber tracks. How's it going? It's going good. Yeah. Normal day here at uh, the studio, you know. Yeah, it seems like nothing bad has happened. It's still standing. Still standing. Yeah. What's new in your life, Ben? In my life? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I was just listening, uh, as as you noticed when you came in the office, I was listening to this uh, Brazilian fusion band, Azim- Azimuth or something like that. Yeah. It's very jazzy, elevator yeah, cool. music-y, but it helps me focus on work. Really? Uh, yeah. I was just uh, advancing the bands for the uh, Vancouver pop-up and for Brooklyn next week, which I probably should have done a little more in advance. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot going on, a lot of bands applying, a lot of stuff. I'm sure. <laughs> um, that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like I I try to listen to podcasts when I work, and then I just start... It's hard to write and listen to podcasts. It's better to yeah. like, if I have to like, or get clean something or something, but it's hard totally. to use your brain and listen to someone talk. Yeah. Brad puts on podcasts sometimes in the office and I can't do, I can't do work while I'm listening to it because yeah. it's really engaging. Yeah. Uh, speaking of engaging podcasts, <laughs> today on Going Off Track, we have uh, author, playwright, director, musician, all around awesome dude, Adam Rapp. Um, I uh, I read Adam's. We talk about it, I read Adam's first novel. I picked it up randomly, like the week before I moved to New York nine years ago. Um, the Year of Endless Sorrows, or Countless the Year of Countless Sorrows. I think Endless Sorrows. I don't know. It's been a long day. And we'll look uh, it up. <laughs> well, look it up. And then his new book is definitely called Know Your Beholder, and uh, it's also a fantastic novel, kind of music ba- ba- fiction but sort of based a little on on his experiences as a musician and um he's developing it into a tv show as well um so that's really cool and i would definitely check that probably my favorite book of the year and Sweet. he has a play called wolf in the river that just opened that is going to be running um until may 2nd 
and it was written and directed by Adam. And uh, at the Flea Theater. At the Flea Theater. Yep. And on White Street. On White Street, and tickets. Um, tickets are cheap, twenty to eighty dollars. And he said that uh, he's trying to make it accessible for younger people who just want to spend twenty bucks to see a play. Cool. So there's like a lot of drama and, and like sex in it. Um, it explores love and neglect, the challenges of poverty, the dangerous cost of shiftlessness, the simple notion of leaving a place behind, and the value of a girl. Mm. So sounds like that could be yes. everything you're looking for in a play, Ben. Yeah, you know, um, I'm young, I'm hip, twenty. It's true, and it was so crazy because Adam just left, and we were saving the file, and Ben was like, "Who is?" That? I was like, "Oh, this guy, Adam, <laughs> rap," and Ben. <laughs> was like a fan, like knew who he was, which is not a slight against Ben, but I just don't see you as like a playwright type, yeah. I guess. No, my brother was in the flea. He was a bat, as they call the company. They're called the bats. And he was in there and, and I saw like multiple shows that he did that were written by Adam Rapp. And my brother's a huge fan of his. And it's crazy. And then, yeah, I, I've been watching the new show that he's doing on TV Oh, vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. On HBO. We didn't get into that in this podcast because we had so much other stuff to talk about. But yeah, he mentioned that when he came in. Yeah, yeah. And it's really good. It's really well written. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, he's just... I can't remember... Like, the shows they do at the Flea are typically, like, pretty crazy avant-garde and, like, there's weird psychedelic things that happen and, like, people... I don't know. it's, It's usually pretty weird. So I don't know if the I'm I'm not I can't really remember which shows were his, but if I looked it up, I'm sure. Yeah, he's done like thirty. I think yeah, he's done he's, a ton of stuff. Yeah, and he I get, he can like showcase his new work there, or I think he just like writes shows just to be performed at the Flea. Yeah, yeah. He, we talk about that how he kind of keeps the venue in mind as he's writing if he can. Yeah, it's a cool place. Yeah, so check out the Flea. Check out um, Adam's new play, uh, Wolf in the River. Um, it's running now until May 2nd and, uh, yeah, let's listen to this really, really interesting podcast with Adam Rapp. Do you know a band called Wall? Do you know Wall? It's Sam. Do you know, you know, Parker Courts? Yes. So her, um, Austin, who's one of the lead singers and her, his girlfriend, who was my, my assistant for a long time. They're an unsigned band who, like, they're doing really well because he's helping promote them and he's helping recording them and all that stuff. But okay. they're kind of a band everyone's talking about. Um, and she's like this really, really hot, like, um, she used to have her own video show in Austin, Texas when she was 15. No way. So she's a weird, um, she's a weird, uh, record nerd. And she's also, um, just really cool and she kind of does a lot of diy art stuff and she's just a freak like she's okay. and she's amazing and the band is really cool and she's kind of like a like tries to do the pretty punk she can't help but be pretty but she's kind of right. got this like punk i don't know how to explain what they do it feels it feels kind of like um david burn that band Oh, talking heads. Talking heads. Okay, yeah. it's got that kind of vibe to it. Okay, but it's but the, but what's weird because she's like so pretty. Yeah, yeah. That it doesn't make sense. Right, and it makes it really interesting. It's called Wall. Wall. They're called Wall. W A L L. But I don't know. Keep an eye out for them. Yeah, yeah They're, they're playing out. and they're getting a big following. And one of my old roommates is the bassist for them, and oh, she's cool. cool. And she's from it's a, like a, some Austin people who are now in New York. And, okay, um, and I kind of know all them and. She's, she was like my assistant for a while, and wow. then all of a sudden now she's doing this weird 
you know, and I went to see it and it was like, wow, you're really weird. <laughs> it, was, it was really cool. That's know. great. Yeah, I'll check yeah. it out for sure. I yeah. feel like it's so hard to get a handle on like local bands here. I know. I know. It's like I feel like I would just go to see bands that come through. Yeah. And do you stick in, stay in Brooklyn or are you still like, I remember when uh, like Mercury Lounge and pianos and I mean, that's where we were playing. And yeah. I remember that was sort of like during the indie rock wave of the n- mid 90s. That was like such a great. Yeah. I mean, you could go to Irving Plaza too and some bigger spots, but. Even before Bowery Ballroom kind of got big, yeah, the smaller spots were like yeah. where you could catch. Like, That's where my band used to always come. We'd play like Lid or Arlene's. Where, yeah, what, yeah, we played. We played there too. What, what was your band? It's called the Love Kill. I'm mean, oh, cool. United Nations now, but it's been Love Kill. And yeah, we used to play those places, but I feel like I never go to them now. Yeah, I know. Like the cake something's, shop. Or something's pianos. changed. Yeah. yeah. The I don't know if it's the curators or yeah. Um, but I had some really great nights where I, would, I remember seeing like. Low and Smog, who are huge, I hugely love them, like back-to-back at Mercury Lounge on a rainy Sunday night with like 40 people in the audience before they were, before they, you know, before Bill Callan and, and, you know, Low kind of blew up. Yeah. Like there was this amazing sweet spot in the mid-90s. I mean, I'm being nostalgic, but the i miss the like wave of the mid 90s when all these uh, bands that became really big uh, indie rock bands sort of came through and played places like mercury lounge and pianos and um even uh Chine's and uh yep. places that uh now you you don't go there for destination you just go there for like um you're lucky if you see something like that now um, right. there but it was like a, an incredible moment where between cat power and even like even like the cooler on 14th street which doesn't exist anymore i remember that was a room that only holds like 150 people and one night i saw cat power open for um open for um sonic youth which was the most crazy you know sonic youth playing for 150 people right in a kind of unannounced gig and like that i feel like those smaller rooms um just don't get inhabited in the same way anymore i don't know i feel i miss that you know i miss uh uh, and maybe I'm a little out of touch, but I feel that there was a special time when uh, all those all those bands were kind of like speaking to each other. Elliot, Elliot Smith, um, uh, even the Wrens, you know that Jersey band, yep. the Wrens, they would come, or what the old Knitting Factory was on uh, on Leonard Street. Yep, um, that was a really um, like kind of a golden time, I think, for like indie rock in, in Manhattan at least. When did you move to Manhattan? Uh, in 1990 and uh, 91, um, I graduated college in 91 and my little brother had an apartment in the East village that I still live in now in the same apartment. Um, I took over the lease after he moved out. So, uh, ni- yeah, a lot, like 25 years ago. Wow. Yeah. I moved here nine years ago and I sort of found out about you cause a week before I moved, I was at a bookstore and the year of endless sorrows was kind of sitting out. Oh, what bookstore? Um, it was in, it was, I was living in Cleveland. Oh, it was in the suburbs, like, um, I can't remember, some kind of like local chain place. Uh-huh. And it was like on like a thing. And I was like, oh, I'm moving to New York. There's a book about New York. Yeah. And like, I loved it so much. Oh, it that's was so cool. great. And it was such a cool thing to kind of read, sort of just coming here. Was that book sort of about, I mean, obviously it was a lot of it was autobiographical. Was it about sort of your experiences when you first came here 25 years ago? Yeah. I think a lot of it, a lot of it's made up, you know, I think definitely the the feeling the feelings of uh isolation and being a midwesterner and uh not really knowing how to negotiate the city um not knowing how to walk fast enough you know not knowing how to um 
eat correctly. And I was, I was, I came, I went to college in Iowa and I grew up in Illinois, in Joliet, Illinois. So, um, and I was raised Roman Catholic. So I was sort of this repressed weirdo and I didn't know I was a weirdo yet. And, uh, and I, and I got a job in book publishing right away, like the day after I got here. So I, I tried to somehow, um, chronicle what that felt like for uh, a fish out of water. Um, and then it, a lot of it was really me writing vignettes for a long time about that experience. And then I had to take a lot of time to kind of figure out how to knit them all together. Um, so it didn't just feel like some episodic, uh, narcissistic crap. You know, I wanted to find a real reason for it to be a novel, to be read. And so I, I fabricated a love story in it and tried to create some obstacles for him and, um, just tried to, for me, that book was really meditative. It was, uh, me, something I, I returned to, I think it actually took me some 12 years to complete, which for me is unusual because I usually write much more quickly than that. But I feel like it was like a rock for me for a long time that I, I could come back to during some really, really bad times where I was really broke or I struggled with some depression for a while. And I, I had some ups and downs with other parts of my career and, you know, some botched relationships. And I feel like that was the thing that kind of kept me connected to myself for a long time. And, uh, it's nice to hear that it's still out there. I mean, I'm happy it's still in print. I feel like I was writing that novel in like 1996 because I remember I was working on it when I lived in the South of France in 1997. I was definitely working on it there and then it didn't get bought until 2005. So that's a, wow. that's a long time for me, but I'm really glad I stuck it out. And Denise Oswald, who was at FSG at the time, um, got a look at it. She was actually publishing my plays and she's one of these rare editors who does like many things. She does plays and books and she's really into rock and roll and she's really into, um, you know, all kinds of things. So she was a, a triple threat in that way. And she actually edits fiction too. And she, uh, read it and she said, I want to do this. So I was really, really happy that it found, you know, found a publisher, uh, got really lucky. They published it in, uh, as a paperback original, which at the time was a new thing they were doing. And it was, um, like Sam Lipsight's book, um, home, uh, homeland was kind of the, one of the early successful paperback originals that they had published. And it was sort of to try to reach, a younger audience that was somewhere between sort of the high school kid and, and like the 30 year old, uh, so they could drop the price point and sell it for like 14 bucks or whatever it was instead of 25 as a hardcover. And at first I remember being really resistant to that because it, it seemed like it was less prestigious somehow to not be in hardcover first. But, um, I'm actually really happy with how it was published and, um, it feels it's it's funny it's this only book i've ever had where the co the covers never changed yeah. you know and, and and there's something about that that feels kind of timeless and i'm really happy it's still in print yeah yeah it's great i mean um what was the process like i mean was it something you would just would like come back to sporadically or was it like written in like bursts of time or it was written in bursts and uh uh because i have uh, this other theater career I would have these, you know, workshops or near misses, or I'd have a bad experience somewhere uh, with a play because uh, I didn't really understand how to make the theater stuff work yet because I was so new to it and so uh, naive about it that I would come back with sort of defeat. <laughs> and, um, but I was, then I would like tackle the novel again and sort of hole up in my little office room uh, and, 
and just sort of look at it and, and reread it and reread it and kind of move forward or start to chisel it and try to find some uh, momentum in it. But yeah, it was really, it was like, I think there was at one point where I was away from it for about nine months and I thought, oh, this is dead. Cause when you're away from something like that for so long, you lose the kind of kinetic energy, um, that is so, so essential to writing long form like that. And I, and I was somehow able to kind of get back into it. I think because I was able to like connect to the guy's, uh, <laughs> to the character's, uh, depression actually, and like the struggle he was going through. So, and the fun part of it was, um, you know, with a character like that, you got, you, you, you can also make fun of yourself in some way and like try to find some buoyancy and humor. And that kind of kept it, it, it made it fun to return to because I could actually, uh, enjoy sort of, uh, having some perspective on it, you know? Right. That makes sense. I mean, we were sort of talking about this before, kind of the way the East Village has changed. I mean, to me, that book is such kind of a time capsule because it was kind of before I was here. But even in the time, like the last 10 years, it seems like it's changed so much, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. Um, we were, you know, I was just telling you the storefronts in my neighborhood. On I live on 10th uh, between 1st and A, and all the storefronts are too small for all the big businesses to come in and kind of and kill the mom and pop um thing of 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 that area but when you get on the avenues it's it's all different because the all the restaurants and all the old bookstores and all the record shops like kim's and right. these places they're all like gone now and it's uh so there's sort of a cultural blight that's happened and there's places like ricky's and you know um not fast food places but like easy food places and strange uh the, like the thrift stores the small thrift stores still exist on the streets but on the avenues you know they're all the all the cool weird places are gone so i've seen that transformation and it's kind of sad i mean it's definitely safer um i don't have bars on my windows anymore and uh i feel like i you know you don't have to contend with the the random violence that you used to see you know on avenue a or avenue b but um i miss the you know the old the weirdos um and the crazy you know the crazy sounds you'd hear at four o'clock in the morning and um, it's just the, we've lost a little bit of the character, you know, definitely. Yeah. I mean, what was it? I mean, was it sort of scary back then or what was it? Yeah. I mean, we, I live in a, f a fifth floor walk up, um, and we had to have bars on the windows because we, our, our apartment had been broken into like three times and I'm in a fifth floor walk up. That's, I mean, that's a lot of effort to break into an apartment. Yeah. And now like we can leave our windows open. Um, I could leave the door open. I mean, it's just, there were drug dealers on every corner and they were, they knew me, you know, cause I played ball at Tompkins Square Park. So they would see me play ball and they kind of always, they called me Opie, you know, and they would like have fun with that. Um, cause I was a pretty good basketball player back then. And, um, but it was still strange, like the, the sort of gunshots and the co Molotov cocktails. I moved here the summer of the riots too. So I got here like March or May 3rd or May 4th. And they were just extricating Thompson Square Park and getting all the homeless out. So it was like a wild, it felt like um, there was a war going on. There was like police in riot gear and the perimeter of the park and Molotov cocktails flying off the roofs on 13th Street. And um, just like, just a crazy smell, you know, because it was like things were burning, you know, uh, the shanty towns were getting burnt out of Tompkins Square Park. Uh, like the, it sounded like, you know, what Don DeLillo describes in Mao 2, it was like that. Uh, it was like that. I think he actually captures it really beautifully. Um, but that's something I'll never forget. I mean, I was like a guy who didn't even know what he wanted in the world yet. And I was walking around seeing this um, intense social battle, like up close 
with the homeless and the police and in the neighborhood. And, uh, and I was just trying to get to an ATM. There were only like two or three ATMs in the, in the neighborhood then. And one of them was on Avenue B. And if you went there alone, you'd get robbed. So you always had to go with a buddy. And what would happen is you would get robbed with somebody with an AIDS needle. They would walk up to you with a needle and they, and they would stick it through your clothes. Um, or they would threaten you with it because it's easy to do that. And they would, and you'd give him money. So you'd come with a friend and he would like be your buddy outside the ATM and watch while you got your money and then you'd flip and watch while he got his money. And, um, yeah, that was, that was pretty scary. Those were scary times, but fortunately I only got mugged once and I actually got mugged in Soho of all places. <laughs> um, never in the East village. Um, and I, I think I made it through the, all these years kind of unscathed, you know, and, and luck, lucky, you know, but, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a weird time. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. So when you moved here, obviously did you start out doing the playwriting stuff or the band? It seems like there's some kind of so many mediums you work in. Yeah, I was strictly a fiction writer when I moved here. Um, I got a job in book publishing. I got lucky enough to get an interview the day after I got here and I got the job the next day. It was a really low paying, uh, assistant job. Uh, I think my first salary was $16,800. Um, and I was strictly like working on a novel that I'd started in college um, that would become my first novel that was published in 94. And I didn't know anything about the theater, honestly. And my brother, who was an actor, was in a show called Six Degrees of Separation at Lincoln Center, which is one of John Guare's sort of great plays. And it wound up being a huge success. So I, because I didn't have a social life, I would go meet him at Lincoln Center. And I started hanging out with like the actors after the show and getting to know like what that world was. And, and, uh, stupidly, I thought like if I could write a play that was good enough and I could have people to hang out with, <laughs> you know, it was like, um, I, and, and there were good looking girls and, you know, the, the actresses were interesting and the, the designers were interesting. And that world of misfits was really interesting to me. Cause I, even though I, um, probably didn't look like a misfit, I, I, uh, certainly felt like one. And so I found like this group of people that I, I had a, a like, a liking, I liked a lot. And I, and I liked the vibe of post-show beers and, and, uh, you know, de hanging out with those folks who sort of make their own time in the world. I really dug that. And so slowly I thought, well, I'm going to try to write a play. And I started reading all these plays that I would literally find at St. Mark's bookshop that had stickers on them, the ones that would win the awards. Cause I just figured those were the good plays. Um, everything from like, Carol Churchill to Sam Shepard to Pinter um, to like Nikki Silver, you know, um, anybody, anything and anybody, uh, British playwrights. Uh, I didn't necessarily read the classics. Like I didn't read much Shakespeare at the time and I didn't read the Greek tragedies or anything like that. But I, so I was sort of self-taught. And then I think because I had enough of a, enough discipline with my fiction writing, I was able to sort of make myself sit down and try to figure that out and take the time to do that. Um, and I think one of the early blessings I had w with playwriting is that I didn't know the rules of it. So everyone thought I was like breaking the rules, but I just didn't know the rules. And so, um, I wrote a play that got into the O'Neill playwrights conference that, and I was there in the, for the summer of 1996. And that was a real life changer for me because you really got to feel what it was like to be a playwright in a process where you had actors and a director and people who were um, surrounding you trying to figure out how to make the play uh, come to life and you were the center of the process. And that was a really, uh, great feeling for me. Um, as a novelist, you know, you're always alone and you're working in your room and you're dealing with your, you know, notepad or your, um, 
in my case, I just write straight, straight into my, um, laptop. Um, and it's such a lonely pursuit and it's an important lonely pursuit, but sometimes, you know, you start to miss people. And I think for me, the two worlds have always been, um, good for me. Like I can retreat back to writing fiction when I get tired of all the people in the theater. And when I miss those folks, I can, you know, go try to get a play going. And, um, like right now I'm in, you know, the play I'm working on now has, 14 people on stage all at the same time and so it's been this big family kind of environment and it's uh been a lot of fun and really challenging and really hard but like i i think after we open on monday i'll probably want to be alone for a while you yeah. know so and i can get back to some of the fiction stuff yeah i mean what's sort of the process like of even trying to put something like that together is it just a lot of planning or is it like you know, do you, is it do you think about the whole conceptual thing while you're writing uh you know i'm i'm as a playwright i'm getting more and more conceptual because i direct all my work and i'm starting to well for a while now i've i've started thinking about space and the audience experience and what the what the room will be like um if i know a theater is going to produce it i'm i'm writing toward that room you know um if i don't know then i want to kind of just create it in my mind and sort of have a sense of that. But I always try to figure out what the world of the play is. Like the thing we're doing now is in the round um, at the Flea Theater. And it's a very immersive experience. And so the play is happening behind the audience. It's happening in front of the audience. Um, it's happening over the audience's head. There's a little aerial thing that happens in the play. Um, and like that was something that was very specific. I developed it at NIDA in Australia, which is the National Institute for Dramatic Art. It's like their Juilliard. Um, and I was uh, fortunate to have like, you know, they had brought me over there and paid me to write and direct something for their, their graduating class. And so I had this sort of great seven week process where I was able to like hatch a new play with, uh, seven actors. Um, and so I was, I could write specifically to that space, um, which was a small black box theater. And when the flea picked it up, uh, which they called me back in December, just luckily it translated to the space really well um because it was a similar kind of sized room so on that front I'm, i was lucky but i i generally you know if i have an idea for a play i always have to sort of know what room i'm in or if it's an abstract space i have to sort of think of it that way and i'm i think i'm getting more versatile in that way like the next play i'm doing is a very very small tiny play that's set in a in a in a small house in paducah kentucky and you're really just in this living room which looks into a kitchen the whole time and it's just three characters and it's a very small like postage stamp of a play and the thing i've been doing now is like it, like i said it's sort of this surround experience and 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 I, I really love both but um i think you know be after doing 30 some plays and um directing other things uh like operas and stuff like that i i feel like all that is now feeding me creatively and i'm having more fun with sort of coming up with new ideas uh, how an audience will experience a story, you know, and try to get inside their nervous systems in a, in a, in a more interesting way, you know. Definitely. What's the name of the play that's about to come out? Oh, it's called Wolf in the River, and it's at the Flea Theater in Tribeca. Okay. Um, and we open Monday, and it runs through March 2nd, or May 2nd. May 2nd. Yeah. Awesome. And what, did I see, one of your plays was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize or something? Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, Red Light Winter, which uh, started at Steppenwolf in 2005, and then W uh, transferred to the Barrow Street Theater in the West Village, um, and we opened there in 2006, and it ran for I think six or seven months. And it w yeah, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Weirdly, it was the year they they decided not to award. They they named three finalists and decided not to not to award one. So I'm in. 
I'm in some elite company with like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and other plays like that. Although it's depressing that they couldn't come up with a reason to give us, you know, a playwright ten thousand dollars. Right. I find that to be kind of despicable. But um, you know, I was uh, it was Chris Durang, myself, and Rollin Jones, who are like you know two other fantastic playwrights, and I, I can't believe they they couldn't come up with a reason to. I I understand that the committee um, picked somebody and that the the Columbia University board of the Pulitzer like rejected it and decided not to award it. So it's a little bit of a controversy. And uh, somebody who was on the committee told me, um, and I'm not allowed to say who it was, but um, so it was like a a weird um, a weird subtle loss slash victory just to be you know. Um, named a finalist and it's done nice things, you know, it's nice for your career and all that. Um, and you, you know, you do get recognized and, and all that stuff, but it was, uh, sad that they couldn't give us, you know, one of us, the, the award. Yeah. Yeah. We've had 200 guests. I don't think anyone else has had been in the running. Oh, wow. Well, I probably, you know, I, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have been, and you know, it's probably one of those things where I just got lucky. Um, but you know, it, to come so close and to not, uh, it, it is, it is tempting to think about those things sometimes. Um, but it's, you know, it's nice to keep them out of your head and just do the work, but, right. um, I won't, I won't lie. I mean, I think every, every writer, you know, wants to be recognized and, you know, at some point. So it's nice to be recognized. Definitely. And so your latest book, Know Your Beholder, mm-hmm. um, is sort of about a musician. I mean, how much kind of like an agoraphobic musician, mm-hmm. um, how much of that sort of is based on your life because obviously you played in bands for a long time as well yeah i mean the other musician stuff in the book and the band stuff in the book is really drawn from um uh just experiences that i had with with playing music and um the first band i was in is a band called bottom side it was just me and this other guy it was like we were two-piece and it was sort of short-lived and this guy named his name is eric shimalonis and he's an amazing multi-musician who plays like 70 instruments and he went to the you know he went to the cleveland school of music or whatever that that um an amazing school and he was a sound designer for a lot of my plays and we started playing music together and so we made a record that was that um uh called the element man which i think was came out in like oh four or something like that and then slowly um I, I started playing music with a band called Less the Band, which these four other guys, uh, Ray Rizzo, Paul Sparks, Michael Chernis, and Rob Beitzel. And uh, we made two records and uh, spent a lot of time together. Uh, and I based, a, I created a play that was about a band and I used that band for the play. And we, we, we did that in Edinburgh. It was a, a, a play called Finer Noble Gases. And we went to Edinburgh together and then we wound up touring with My Morning Jacket. So we had a really nice taste of the sort of Lower East Side, East Village, um, small club sort of circuit. And then we did some mini tours in America where we were playing places like Louisville and Cincinnati and Chicago and Madison, Wisconsin and uh, Milwaukee and places like that. Uh, and then we and we were, you know, opening for My Morning Jacket in like the UK. So... We had a, there was a lot of um, different experiences that were depressing and thrilling, and um, you know just the the all those anecdotes of of sleeping together on floors or sleeping in beds together with dudes who are farting or like um, cramming your gear into the back of a bad rented van that's dinged up or you know carrying the drummer's uh, all of his gear because he's tired of it, you know all the family stuff that sort of 
the bickering and the the silliness and you know the thing of being a you get to still be a seventh grade boy basically for a while that was just an amazing time and i and a lot of that informed um the backstory of this guy's life francis who uh is the is the narrator of the book and he's struggling with uh, his wife has just left him and his band has sort of fallen apart and he's turned his boyhood home into a rooming house where he's renting apartments to other people and he's getting kind of caught up in their lives and um, and slowly he starts to come out of his shell and uh, take some steps to get a, to literally walk outside, which is a, a big deal for him. And he's struggling with depression and he's struggling with um, purpose and he's sort of pre-middle-aged, um, which I think is a, 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 a part of one's life that's not talked about a lot, um, that when you're trying to pursue something in your 20s and 30s and then suddenly that's over, what are you looking to? Um, and in this guy's case, his wife left him for another guy and he um, found himself kind of emotionally destitute and he's stuck in the home where he grew up and his mother has died and his father's moved on and lives in Florida. So it's like, how do you reinvent your life and how does one, uh, you know, figure out what purpose means after that? And, and I think it's a lot of fun. I mean, I think it's, it's supposed to be sort of a comic novel as well. And, um, and, and just in terms of his, uh, the things that he's doing to sort of make sense of his life and the way he's interacting with his, um, with the people who live in his house and, uh, just how, uh, he, his struggles are, are hopefully sort of funny too, but, um, that's where it all kind of comes from. I never lived in a house. I always, gr- I grew up in apartments. Uh, my mother was a nurse, um, but I've always fantasized about living in a house and I always fantasized about living in a big Victorian house for some reason. I, go, I went to school in Dubuque, Iowa and to, for college and there's all these beautiful Victorian houses there on bluffs and I used to walk around the downtown area and look up at the bluffs and and look at these Victorian houses and sort of dream that I could like live in one. So I think in some way that, uh, the, the novel, the location of the novel and that how that house is sort of, sort of me fantasizing in some way, um, about a house. Um, and now that I've been, been in New York for 25 years, you know, we live in apartments here, so I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I'll probably wind up, you know, being one of those guys who, who's, uh, going to die in, in, in his East village apartment. And then they'll have to like scrape my body off the wood floor or something like that. But, um, so, uh, yeah, I guess part of the book for me is like imagining what it's like to like actually have to contend with a, with a house because he has to sort of fix things that are, are broken and he has to, you know, walk up and down the stairs and, you know, check the basement and check the fuse box and all that stuff. And it's, um, it was interesting for me to kind of create that fictionally. Yeah. I always have this fantasy. I'm going to have like a room just with like a record player and all my records and stuff. And yeah, I don't know when that's ever going to be a reality. I'm just starting to have that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, And I only have about 200 records, but, um, it's great. It's awesome. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, um, and you did an event, I feel like when the book came out with, with Karen O or something. Yeah. Yeah. Karen and I are, are friends. Um, uh, I directed this, uh, what we called a psycho opera of hers called Stop the Virgins, which, um, premiered, uh, at St. Anne's Warehouse. I think it was 2011 or 2010. Um, all these years are getting away from me now, but that, that, performed at St. Anne's for about uh, two weeks. And then we took it to the uh, Vivid Live Festival in Sydney, Australia at the Sydney Opera House for another, uh, I think, 14 shows. And that was a, f- that was a year later. So we became really, really close friends. Um, 
oddly enough, she, her, she shares a wall with my brother, uh, which was completely random. My brother now lives, um, and he, they live in New York. I can't, I won't say where they live, but, but, uh, they literally share a wall. And when I went to her house the first time I had no, or her apartment, I had no idea uh, that they were like neighbors. So that's just bizarre. But yeah, we spent like every day together for about nine months, almost every day together and sort of conceiving, um, the psycho opera that, that she wrote. It was an 11 song sort of song cycle that she had, um, this abstract narrative, um, that she wanted to stage as a, as a, as a, as a theatrical experience. Um, and so I helped her do that and, uh, and directed it. And, uh, it had a 14 person band that had like the guys from the rock on tours and it and money Mark from the beastie boys and, uh, Jason Grissel, um, and, and also Nick Zinner from her band and, and Brian from her band, Brian chase. Um, and then that had six girls who were sort of interacting with Karen. Um, and there were these feral girls who were sort of somewhere between the jungle and space. Um, and then there was a 31 girl choir and then Lily Taylor was in it as this sort of, um, queen character. And there was another woman who was in it named Lila, who was, um, a queen character. And it was the biggest thing I've ever done. I mean, I've directed three films and that was way harder to figure out. Um, but we only had like two weeks of rehearsal and, and we did it. And it was an incredible experience. Christian joy, who was her personal like costume designer came up with all these wild costumes. It was this sort of phantasmagoric, um, experience and, and, uh, I had an amazing experience. I'll never forget it. And, uh, so based on that, we just became really tight. I'm really close friends with, with her and, and she's, she just had a kid. Um, and she's like entering that phase of her life and she's been staying out west um and i think she's going to be back and forth a lot but she's just like someone i like she's kind of a soulmate actually and so when the book came out she has this uh wave of songs she did that were these love songs that she wrote for her husband and there's a a cool um i don't know conversation that they have with the novel for this guy's uh for for francis's sort of lost love in his life and so i thought Let's see how that feels to sort of have her, I would read some sections um, and then she would play some songs and we just sort of did that handoff for about an hour and a half. And it was actually a really, really powerful evening, more powerful because I think her, her music just sort of lifted it above the standard reading, you know, and, and she, Dave Pajo was playing with her and, and, uh, and, and Nick Zinner and Dave Pajo played and it was really, really special, um, to have them there and, uh, and uh dave had just gone through a tough time and he, he it was great for him to come out and just kind of connect with him and and uh and sh- and it's that she sounded amazing and uh she was pregnant at the time too so that was something oh, wow it was just a really special night it was a night i'll never forget and it was a great house and i didn't screw it to screw too many of the sentences up um and you know it, it kind of launched the book in a really cool way um but i'm always trying to figure out how to do things like that uh that are not just your standard bookstore reading just because you know um I think as I have experience in the theater and with music and stuff, there's always uh, more interesting ways to do it. So Definitely. That's really interesting. Um, I think it's really relatable. I'm 36 mm-hmm. and I have so many friends who kind of dropped out of school when they were 18 or 19 to do mm-hmm. bands full time. And now I feel like I've always written, so I've never had like a band as like a soul form income, but so many of them, their bands are sort of now breaking up or mm-hmm. becoming less popular and they're getting married. And it's sort of like, what do I do now? I feel like that's such a 
because you have to sort of commit yourself in order yeah. to do it. But most of the time, if you get successful, it doesn't last more than whatever. A, a year or two. Yeah, yeah totally. It's so, it's so interesting. Like these bands that last all these years, like, I mean, I've just worked, I just, I, I, I marvel at um, these bands that stay together for like five years. And then, you, then there's, you know, then there's insanity, like the Rolling Stones or, you know, um, I don't know how they do it because it just, I can't be around the same people for that long without going nuts you know like right. that's what happened to our band we started like hating each other these are my brothers who i love like i think of them as family to this day and then you're on the road and you're just like tired of you know stealing each other's food and tired of like mooching off each you just you get tired of the close quarters and then you're you're taking that on stage with you and um the stuff that used to feel really good, those moments on stage that felt good start to feel like bizarre. And I don't know how bands can sustain it. I think it's so, um, it's, it's miraculous when you, you know, especially that age that you're talking about, because, uh, like the two guys in my band got married, three of them are now married and one of them has two kids. And that to me, kids and marriage always sort of compromises a band because it's all about getting in a room together Right. And suddenly you can't have your bassist there or you can't have uh, your drummer who's like so important or, and then there's, you know, then it becomes, we used to get together literally twice a week and write and work on stuff. And, and when we were really tight, it was really fun. And that was, to me, it's always the stuff in the room when you're rehearsing and, and, and writing and creating stuff and just jamming. That's the stuff I'll never forget. I mean, the, the stuff on, the performing and all that and the playing gigs, that's also really fun because the stakes are high and you got to kind of deliver. But, um, the ritual of it is, is the thing I miss. And, um, and it's all came down to like having kids and, and, you know, having, having to make money. And, right. and, uh, and I think that's, I don't know that that's been written about a lot, like that sort of dead phase that happens to a band after, good things happen to people you know the good things are the things that um like falling in love um having kids getting a better job making more money getting getting opportunities that's the thing that kind of actually kills a band so there's a strange dissonance with that that i think is um interesting you know i guess i was trying to discuss that a little bit with the book um in in retrospect you know but um yeah, it's when you hear about these bands, like even a band like Yola Tango that's been around since 88 or 86 or whenever, it's amazing. I mean, they're married, you know, right? Um, and and the the bassist is like their best friend. So it makes sense that they've made, maintained that for all these years. And obviously they're still married. So that's a good thing. But, you know, I don't know how they, I don't know how you pull it off um, as a full, like a fully formed band for more than a few years, you know. And I feel then it sort of becomes, it becomes so, the music I feel like becomes such a small part. Like I feel like the writing and recording is so fun, but so much of it's like businessy stuff or right. booking or right. routing stuff or like, yeah, it becomes just... Silk screening t-shirts. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it just becomes all these yeah. other jobs that you sort of didn't get into it for, I guess. And then that, that often will expose who's lazy in the band and who right. doesn't want to do stuff and then resent, resentments form. But the cool thing that happened, I guess, around, I don't know, 2000 or whenever that was, is when like all these bands started kind of going totally independent and self-producing and forming websites and selling their own stuff. That was a really cool time because... Um, you weren't beholden to uh, a label and you could, you could actually get yourself out there and get your band heard. And, um, I think the internet really changed everything in that regard. But at the same time, then all these pressures sort of fell upon a band to like, well, now who's going to do, who's going to manage it and who's going to, who's going to, like what you were just saying, who's going to book things, who's going to, 
who's going to be organized. And I feel like that right there is like a, a thing that kind of can often um, really infect a band. Um, and sometimes in a really good way, you know, like I, I was telling you before about Parquet Courts. I know Austin from Park, Austin Brown, and they seem to have a very good functioning. They're very young too. Like the, I think Austin might be 29. Um, and the other guys in his band, they're, I think there's two brothers in the band, but they're tour, they have fun, they're managed to record. So I've seen them a couple of times where they're really tired. Of course that happens too, but like somehow they're like keeping it alive, which I, I have a lot of respect for. Definitely. I mean, how long did it take you to write Know Your Beholder? Um, it, you know, it, it started out as a short story that I was asked to write for this, uh, website. And then I just thought, uh, I got to the part of the book where he, he enters one of his tenants apartments, uh, and he, and she catches him cause she's, uh, their daughter's gone missing and he's starting to be suspicious, um, about whether or not they've done something to the daughter. So he goes in there and keys into their apartment. And I got to that moment and I, I, I ended the story and then I picked it back up like during some downtime. And I thought, Oh, this is not over. I got to keep, this is an interesting world and it's an interesting character. And I like his voice and I think I could hang out with him for a longer period. So that was like a year before I picked it back up. And then, and then I, for a solid year, I just devoted every day to it. And I had a, I had a, a pretty good draft of it that, um, I, sh I shared with my agent and then he sent it out. Um, and I got a really nice response from Ben George, who then was at Penguin. Um, and he was in transition going from Penguin to Little Brown. And so, uh, he, we had lunch and he, you know, told me how much he liked the book and, and I wasn't sure you never know in those lunches or with an editor, like usually they'll have, a, you know, if they're, if they're interested, they'll have lunch with you. But if there's not a good vibe, then it's probably not going to happen. And, um, he's just a really smart, young, like really sharp guy. Uh, and we, we hit it off and, uh, I was really lucky. I mean, I think there were a few rejections in there too. Uh, some, uh, a few people who really liked it, but they weren't sure. There was this wave of what they call upmarket fiction, where or literary fiction that uh, that that kind of fiction was was uh, slowing down quite a bit because it wasn't selling really well. Um, and like biographies and um, I think m memoirs were were kind of in the vogue, and so it was harder to sell a literary fiction, a, a literary novel. And so I was getting like responses from a few publishers that they loved the book, but it wasn't, it wasn't a good time for that kind of fiction. So I was a little bit, um, discouraged. And then I finally had lunch with Ben. And I think that was about a year and a half later. Um, and he had read a really fresh draft. So I think it probably all told, uh, it took me about a year and a half, which is usually if I can devote every day to something, I can get something good done. Um, and that, that amount of time, like with, with fiction, um, theater is a much different thing. And, uh, but, uh, it's much faster and like, I don't understand what I'm writing and it just becomes this unconscious thing. But with fiction, it's much more, um, meditative and much more of a ritual. Um, and I feel, uh, yeah, I think all told it was like a year and a half. Uh, and then of course there was another half year of edits and rewrites. Um, and Ben is an amazing, an amazing line editor. And he had me do something structurally at, at the beginning of the book that kind of, uh, told the whole past tense story clearly, um, more clearly than it was. And, um, that was really helpful, but, the, but it was a really good, um, exchange with him, uh, someone I really respect and, and hopefully we'll work on something again. 
When you're doing that sort of every day for a year, year and a half, I mean, when you say it's a ritual, are you doing it at the same time every day? Like what's kind of the process like when you're... For me, it's, uh, this is going to sound a little silly, but I usually, I stay up really late and work. I'll work till three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning and then I'll get up fairly late and I'll, I'll, um, I'll go play basketball and then I'll come home and then I'll write and I'll like get kind of that sort of playing ball set, like resets my head. Um, and kind of gets all the demons out or whatever. And I kind of get out of my head in a good way. And then I kind of take a hot shower and then I have some food and then I, and then I work. And I, I, sometimes those hours aren't as regimented as it might sound. Um, it could be from like 4 PM to 4 AM with dinner and time with my girlfriend and walking my dog and dealing with daily things. But when I'm in that mode, I'm not doing anything else, but like playing basketball and writing, um, and I love that. I love that kind of ritual. I love the, uh, the simplicity of that. And then I wind up just living between like 10th street and 14th street <laughs> for like six months. Um, and people see me walking around and they probably think I'm some sort of warlock or something, <laughs> but, uh, I really love that part of being in New York, you know, like just, you have your own village, I guess. Um, and then, um, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's really simple. I, you know, um, I have to love what I'm writing. I have to like be entertained by it or I have to be consumed by it in a very narcissistic way, uh, to be that invested. Um, I've written very few things in the third person. So a lot of the process for me is really kind of like what an, maybe, maybe like what an actor goes through in terms of like trying to understand or get inside the skin of somebody, whether it's a kid in some of my novels or a, a woman or whatever, it doesn't matter. I, I just try to become that person, um, psychologically in some way and understand their voice. Um, and I'm doing more in the third person now and I'm finding that that's really satisfying for different reasons. But, um, it is a, it is a thing of, uh, without sounding like a method actor, it, it it's not, it's never going to be exactly that because it's not getting up and walking anywhere, but like living, you know, living in my mind and thinking like that person and, um, trying to inhabit them, uh, psychologically and get into into the music of their voice like that's a very that's something that i feel very comfortable doing and it can be scary but it can it's also very um satisfying it sounds kind of lonely too i mean do you feel that you know you miss kind of hanging out with your friends and that kind of stuff yeah yeah that's the sacrifice you know um that's the sacrifice uh and really the the one constant group of friends i have besides the actors i work with and the you know the designers i work with and um in the theater is this group of guys I play ball with this, these guys, I play on a team called Westside Tavern. Uh, and they're amazing guys. They, they they all played like small and big college basketball. And we've been, I've been, we've been on the same team for like 10 years. And I see these guys like twice a week and, um, they're awesome guys. And, uh, if it, I think they're the most constant group I see like, uh, weekly or biweekly. And it's kind of awesome. And, and of course my girlfriend who I live with, we have a life and, and she does really interesting things that, uh, she's a, a writer as well. And she's also a costume designer and, um, and you know, that, so we do things and we eat dinner together and we have stuff we do at home and we walk around together and all that. So that's fun, but, um, it does get very lonely. And, uh, and I, I love that part of it. I love, um, I love that part of it. I love reading, you know, I love listening to music. I love playing my guitar and all those things can be done alone. So, um, uh, I think one, one, 
one sort of salve for that has been other writers, you know, like reading. I'm, I love reading. Um, I love reading. So, um, when I feel, uh, and I'm in that space where I need to sort of keep focused and keep the discipline of finishing something, I'm always reading a book that I'm sort of in love with, you know, um, and that's a great, a great thing. It's like you have a companion beyond, uh, I guess beyond the, the real, you know, there's a kind of intellectual companion and I feel like that sort of helps that too. Definitely. What have you sort of read lately that you've been really into? Um, right now I'm reading a, a Jennifer Egan novel called look at me that came out, I think like 10 years ago. Um, it's really, really good. Uh, I, I, I read goon squad, which I loved. Yeah. That was great. Also about music too, which was really cool. Um, and so I just wanted to see what else she had done and I'm, I'm really enjoying that. I'm about two thirds of the way through that. Um, I got into, I got into David Foster Wallace, like way after everybody else did. And I read infinite just like last year, which is of course, you know, everyone knows how much of a f- strange and fun challenge and you're carrying around this en- enormous artifact and, uh, having to contend with that in your book bag or your backpack or whatever it is. Um, and that was really amazing. I, I, I go through waves. Like I went through, um, I went through like an Edith Wharton wave where I read all her stuff cause I'm fascinated by her work. Um, I, I went through an AM Holmes wave. Uh, she's become a friend and I really admire her work. Um, I went through like, of course, early in my career, I, uh, when I was starting to write, I was reading a lot of John Updike. I was reading a lot of DeLillo, who I think is, you know, phenomenal. Um, and then people like TC Boyle, who like, I don't know if anyone writes short stories like him, even his, his novel that came out last year. Um, and then Hari Kunzru, who's a friend of mine, I think his, his stuff is incredible. Um, Zadie Smith, uh, like there's just so many great new, like, new novelists um i i'm i'm kind of underread um in the classics like i can't tell you a lot about um although i've read dickens i can't tell you a lot about like all of his novels um and i i'm a little underread on um you know some of the some of the great british writers um for fiction but uh jg ballard you know people like that I, i i anything from like social science fiction to sort of contemporary fiction i'm i'm interested in but I have a pretty big book collection and it's mostly contemporary, like post like 1950. I'm also one of those guys who read, you know, I, I read Catch in the Rye and it changed my life. You know, like one of, I was in military school, um, for high school and I read Catch in the Rye and I was like, Oh, that's what I did. That's the first time I had sort of been a book kind of shocked my system. And I, I became, um, a, a real reader, you know, where I was like looking forward to reading and looking, at a, at a book as like a companion, you know? Um, so like, you know, those are some of the people I love and always have loved. And then there's all these new writers who I, you know, like Sam Lipsight, I think is really, really funny and heartbreakingly sad and, um, uh, writes, he's able to sort of balance, uh, pathos and, and tragedy and, and drama and fun and, and humor. And, um, I admire that. I admire like those who are able to kind of balance all of that. Definitely. I mean, what do you think sort of the state of, I guess, younger writers or fiction? Because it feels like, do you feel like it's in a good place? Because it seems like there's so many more distractions now, like with the internet or like just putting on Netflix and having a million things to watch. I mean, yeah, it's a challenge, you know, it's so interesting. Like what does stasis mean anymore? And what is a narrative? Uh, what does a narrative experience mean? I mean, in the, 
specifically right now, I've been thinking a lot about that with the theater because people come to the theater and we're all so addicted to our devices. And what the theater asks for is that you actually turn your device off and contend with an action that's happening in front of you and a live action that's going on for two hours. And you're, so you can't touch your device for two hours. And I feel like, I mean, we all go, I go through it. I mean, I, I, I check my, my phone, uh, in the middle of the night sometimes because I'm worried about an email or I, I think I might have forgotten to, to, you know, to send a message to somebody like there's, and those platforms have become like directly, uh, linked to our nervous systems. And I feel like, you know, now you can watch Netflix, you can flip your, there's all this sort of ease to access narrative and to access stimulus. And there's something about a book that is such a different, kind of um world building because it's the thing that vonnegut talked about a lot which was that you know when you're when you're a reader you're a performer because you're constructing the world of the novel with the writer so you're imagining the protagonist and their home and you're you're doing all this world building and you're doing all this imaginative work and you're not doing that when you're watching a movie or netflix or or you're you're you know you're you're streaming stuff you're actually all that imagery and all that media is doing that for you so we've gotten further away, I think, as a culture from the ritual of the book. And I think it's, it's, I think it's, you know, the extinction of that idea is, is, is at risk, you know, like the idea of, uh, of, uh, like not needing all the help from the, the camera shot or the, the music, musical interlude. Like, I feel like what's great about the novel is it, I think it makes us smarter because we actually are performers in that, in that regard. And I, I'll never forget that. Um, I actually had dinner with him before he died and I had like the most amazing time. Um, it, we only hung out for about an hour, but, um, he, he, it like changed my life. Like we talked about really silly things. Like he, I asked him what he liked to do cause he wasn't writing anymore. And he said he was watching a lot of judge Judy <laughs> and that he was fascinated by judge Judy and how they put all these pretty girls behind the plaintiff. <laughs> and he was like looking at all the kind of subliminal weird things that were in the frame and talking about that. And he said he was listening to a lot of music. Like if you walked up at him on the street and you gave him a CD of your band, he would take it and listen to it. And we had an email exchange that followed that dinner that lasted for a little while. And, um, he had come see my play twice, a play called Stone Cold Dead Serious. This was back in 2004, um, 2003, actually. And um, I got a message from his wife that he wanted to have dinner. And it was like one of those rare things where, you, you know, you often hear you don't want to meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you. And this was like the opposite. This was like, uh, he's one of my heroes and I met him and I was like, like enriched by the evening and I'll never forget it as long as I live. It was like a real gift he gave me just to talk to me. Um, and then he paid for dinner too, which was awesome. And he drank like two fingers of JB on the rocks all night and smoked. <laughs> he smoked. They let him smoke in the restaurant cause they really? knew who he was. <laughs> they put a little like screen up and they like let him smoke. It was really cool. That's um, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really cool. But he talked about that thing about theater and, and what, you know, how it's, how he loved the theater because it was, um, it was inviting the audience to actually witness something that was really happening in front of them. And that the, this, the exchange of that witnessing and the ritual of that action, uh, was really powerful for him. For my play, hopefully, uh, he said it was, but, um, and then he talked about the book. We were talking about like the novel and he talked about that. And I've, re I've read interviews where he was articulating that too about, you know, the reader as a performer, but it, it made me really think about, um, why something has to be a play, why something has to be a book, why something has to be 
uh, a screenplay or, or a TV, a piece of TV writing or something like that. And what, what is essential about that? And, uh, that was really, um, a real great lesson for me at that time. I mean, it also seems there's so much, there can be so much crossover too. I mean, Mm -hmm. whatever books getting made into movies, that kind of stuff. I mean, what do you, have you ever thought about doing that with any of your novels or? Well, it's weird because no, your beholder, um, is I'm turning that into a TV show. Oh, no way. Yeah. It's, uh, with, um, uh, universal and well, God, what is it? It's a great company. I'm just blanking on them, but I'm in the, I'm and I'm starting to develop it as a half hour, like sort of dramedy, um, based on what the book is exactly what the book is. And then hopefully if it lasts more than a season or two, it would, I'd have to extrapolate beyond the narrative that exists, but, um, you know, they really love the book. Uh, they love the character. They think it will attract like a interesting actor, you know, um, I've never thought about that before. Like I've, I've always been really pure about, um, the books are books and the plays are plays. And, uh, it's the first time I've actually had to adapt something for TV of my own. I've done, I've, I've made a play into a film. Um, and that was really interesting to do too, uh, because there are all these parts of the story that are off stage that then you can sort of, um, expand on. But, uh, I'm, I'm adapting Know Your Beholder, which has uh, been really interesting now that I have all this TV experience and I know what happens in a TV show. Um, it's certainly a for- informing everything. That's know. amazing. I mean, I would imagine it might be kind of difficult saying, you know, writing the novel is such a solitary process where it's all coming from you mm-hmm. and you sort of doing a TV show. I'm sure there's so many other people involved giving suggestions, wanting to change stuff. Is that sort of hard to take the reins a especially, little off? Especially in TV because yeah. there's so many cooks in the kitchen. There's so many producers. There's a studio. There's usually another studio. Then there's, um, you know, there's all kinds of people who want to have a say and the novel is just a solitary pursuit and I, I get to be, you know, the dictator. Uh, um, now, if I were to do, if the TV show happens and it goes goes forward, then I become the showrunner, and so I'm able to make a lot of the major decisions. But I'm still contending with the studio. I'm still contending with executives who all have agendas as well. So, you know, in the end, I don't know that it'll ever be a pure a pure translation from what the book is. But if I'm the showrunner, then I, at least I can control as much as I can, right. and I'm basically the boss of of that experience. So. You know, that's the only way I would do it because I feel very protective of that character and, and the world of the novel and I wouldn't want to see it distorted. And I spent a good t- part of my early playwriting career watching some some of my early plays getting distorted and uh, by directors who had concepts, you know, and, and sometimes there were, there were successful distortions, but I still wasn't really pleased. And that's why I, f- I sort of forced myself to, to learn how to direct because I didn't want to have to suffer that anymore. So, yeah, I mean, this is going to be an interesting you know, phase of seeing how this works, of how something, a, a book turns into a show, one of your own, you know, and, and seeing how it can, um, lead that, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, is there anything else you're kind of interested in doing aside from, I mean, obviously you've done directing, writing, mm-hmm. all these mediums. I mean, is there anything else you sort of want to try? You know, a lot of people, this is so silly, but every time I'm, every time I, uh, get into a, I, I'm, I'm interested in performing more. I mean, I, I, the band was satisfying that in a big way, even though our, we weren't necessarily like a hugely performative, dramatic looking band. We sort of, we were sort of shoegazers, I guess. But, um, 
we had fun on stage, but it wasn't like we weren't interactive with the audience so much. It was more about the music. And I really love that. But I think a lot, a lot of people have come up to me and asked me to be a, a films or to do plays. And I've always shied away from that. And I'm actually, what I want to do is form a company, uh, that is a theater based company where, um, performers and designers and multifaceted, uh, people, uh, like we all get together and do a play, say that's written by me and directed by me. But the next thing we do, like I'm the stage manager, uh, and someone else is writing and someone else is doing like, we're all getting out of our comfort zones or it's like something that the crystal always turns. And then maybe I'll have to perform in one as an actor or as a music person or, you know, or I would sound design something like I'm really interested in that, like stretching, getting, you know, getting outside the things that I know and, and sort of scaring myself, you know, um, that's something that excites me a lot. And like the, the whole, um, ethos of the company would be, uh, the, the sort of vow or the mission statement would be like, you, you never do the same things twice. You know, you, if, if you're, if you're slipping gels for the lighting designer this time, next time you're going to be, uh, stage managing or the, or the time after that, you're going to be actually writing the play and that we just are truly an ensemble, like always making work. Um, and, and sort of dropping the ego of, of who's the boss, you know, uh, that's really interesting to me. Um, that's, you know, that's something I'm really, really excited about. I've, I'd like to do a little, I'd like to do another film. Um, I know a lot more about why they succeed and why they don't artistically. And I feel like I have a better handle of the physical world of making films now. Um, and I'd like to make more music actually. So that's a lot. Yeah. Do you ever, sort of take time to be like it seems like you're so busy do you ever take time like to hold the book and be like holy shit i wrote a book this took me so long or is it more kind of like all right that's done like moving on to the next thing uh i it's more like that's done move on to the next thing um you know when i get the first press copy of the book i have a moment where i like um hold it and it's like i'm holding a, a baby <laughs> i know that sounds a little silly but um uh, it truly is a like an emotional moment for me and um but i try not to dwell on it because uh um, you're only moments away from a couple of like qualified reviews making you question everything and a couple of um, like a few of uh, walking through a bookstore and seeing it not in there is always a little bit heartbreaking. But uh, I try to take a moment and like appreciate uh, the fact that it's in the world. Um, it's it's funny, like I, I'll, this play opens on Monday and I have about a month off and then I do my next play at the Atlantic Theater Company um, and with during that break i have to finish a novel and i also have to finish a rewrite on a pilot and so i won't have any time to like think about what i did right or what i did wrong or what i could have done better i won't have any time for reflection for wolf in the river which is the play that's opening on monday um and somehow that's like a good survival mechanism because you can't get into the undertow of regret you just keep making new work you know but that's that's because I have opportunities, and I've, I'm I'm very very lucky to have um, something coming up. You know, often I do find that when I go when there's a month or two where I don't, then I start to kind of look back on stuff, and I and it, it, it and I you get nostalgic or you get um, you know it, there's a there's there's a kind of disease with nostalgia in a way, and uh, I mean I do remember a lot of things fondly, but there's always the things that didn't go right that also like creep in there so somehow having a lot to do keeps keeps nostalgia at bay 
And it seems like there's kind of elements of nostalgia sort of in the novels too. So maybe you don't have to kind of meditate on that as much. Right. That's true. And I think that's part, part of why I write them, you know, cause I'm trying to contend with things in my life and filter that through fiction. Yeah. It's really interesting. I'm almost done, but I, I was sort of curious as someone, I go to a lot, see bands a lot, mm-hmm. go to a lot of comedy shows. I don't know anything about theater. I mean, what would you sort of recommend for someone who maybe lives in New York? Because it seems like it can be daunting or expensive. Or Yeah, I would, I would recommend um, th- like Soho Rep, um, actually The Flea, where I'm working now. The tickets are cheap. Um, they have young artists and emerging artists who are making work, and they're very exciting, and it's really risky. Rattlestick Playwrights Theater is really interesting. So you're not When you get away from sort of the midtown club theaters like Manhattan Theater Club or Playwrights Horizons, which are all really great and valid and they've been done a lot for my career. But when, you, when you're finding the sort of the more left of center places, um, you're going to actually see some really interesting things. Like Richard Maxwell's work is really interesting. He has his own company called the New York City Players. Um, there's just a, a tremendous amount of, of cool stuff that those those four, three or four theaters are making and you're only spending like $20 or sometimes $30 but during previews especially they have like ticket prices we're, we're, we have $20 tickets um, our ticket prices are tiered right now so it's nice because if you're older and you have more money then you're paying 60 to $80 but if if you're like under 40 or something like that you can pay $20 so oh, wow. it's a really cool it's like what you would pay to go see a good gig totally. you know and that's my whole thing was like how do I get the people who are going to the knitting factory or the people who are going to, you know, North six, how do I get them to come to the theater? Because none of those people think that theater is interesting. And actually there's tremendously uh, interesting work all, all over the place, but people just don't know about it. So I'm always telling people about, you know, the Royal court in London has that kind of rock and roll vibe and they're, but they're a very prestigious theater and they've kind of maintained, um, they've maintained their uh, mission statement of doing cutting throat, cutthroat, uh, new, new wave edgy stuff and mid-career stuff and some and some classic stuff but i feel like soho rep the flea rattlestick playwrights theater um this group called the team which works a lot out of uh the public um there are some sort of roving theater companies that like find spaces and they'll do like site-specific things um it's all out there and it's really really amazing stuff um banana bag and bodice uh electric pair um uh there's a lila neugebauer's company um i can't remember what they're called at the, at the right at the top of my she she used to assist me and now she's in this incredible director who's has a an amazing career i can't remember what her company's called but there's a there's so much interesting stuff that i feel like the rock and roll crowd would really really appreciate and like really get into like what the plays are discussing the kinds of artists who are on stage the kind of um the real risk that's happening it's it's really exciting but that tends to be further away from sort of the midtown theaters and the more established theaters cool. it's like the rock and roll theaters you know that's yeah. where i would go that's where i continue to go yeah well i guess that's a wrap that is a wrap get it yes with two p's with two p's uh Thanks so much. Sorry about the bad joke. Uh, thanks so much to Adam for coming by. It's a real treat. I've been trying to actually get him on the podcast probably for like four years, like probably since we started doing it, and he's so busy. He's working on so many projects, and then, you know, when he's working on a novel, he's kind of like locked in his place for a year, so it's like... And he basically said he had today and tomorrow to like walk around and hang out, and then he's basically just writing or like isn't doing anything for like three months. It's pretty crazy to see... 
like a modern day dude like him, like like a great writer, you know, like a. I mean, not that there's other ones, but like a modern day, you know, playwright who's like respected all around, and like he's pretty young for having written like a million plays and like totally a million books. It's, I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm just not like you said. I'm not really in that world, so I don't. know. I mean, I'm not either. So, I'm but not. like. It seems like he's pretty cutting edge in terms of like having a lot of stuff under his belt and like just being a really good, you know, writer, not like and kind of in like a traditional way almost. Totally. Like classic stuff. Yeah, he reminds me a lot of myself. <laughs> Is that what you're trying to say? Yes. Oh, I forgot about you, of course. <laughs> That's, it's nothing new. Totally. Uh yeah, you can check out my eulogy on Motion City soundtrack on Noisy. You know, could get adapted into something someday. You never know. Um, so, uh, yeah, big shout out to Adam for coming by. This was a, a really, really cool treat, a really fun podcast. Um, again, his uh, his new play, um, Wolf in the River, you can check it out now at The Flea. And it's running toward May 2nd. His new novel is called Know Your Beholder. I think it came out last year, but it's, I actually just reread it and it's fantastic. And he's trying to develop that into a TV show. So keep an eye out for that. Um, if you want to support this podcast, you can go to goingofftrack.com, donate a dollar, five dollars, whatever, um, to help pay for our server costs. If you don't want to donate money, that's cool. Um, you can just leave us a nice comment on iTunes or a nice review or just tweet at us or just let us know you're listening and you're not related to us because that's always a nice treat. <laughs> Um, Those are the only comments that any music gets on iTunes, usually. Yeah, exactly. And you can always tell. Right. Um, what else? Yeah, we uh, we are going to do something. We didn't do something special for our 200th podcast, but uh, we're going to try to do another event soon. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm going to be out of time for a few weeks tomorrow. So uh Going on vacation. Taking a little trip. Yeah, some business, some pleasure. Going to be in California. Going to be in the Caribbean. I'm going to need a break, Ben. Yeah, man. You know what I'm saying? We all need it. We all do. So, uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, we have some really cool podcasts coming up. And uh, thanks again to Adam Rapp for coming by. This is really cool. And, uh, yeah, talk to you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.